Acts chapter 3, our text this morning that you've heard read by our men, contains both a sign and a sermon. But they cooperate to communicate a simple theme, that Jesus can transform your life. We have a sign that gives us a picture of life transformed, and then we have a sermon that unfolds the truth that Jesus can transform not only crippled and broken legs, but crippled and broken hearts. So from the onset this morning, take heart. Whatever you see in your life that needs to be transformed, Jesus is able to handle that. The power of God in Jesus Christ is a power that transforms lives. For some, this may need to be a transformation from life to death, from unbelief to faith in Jesus, a transformation of crippled brokenness by sin to walking and leaping and praising the Lord. Others of you have had that transformation take place, and yet when you look at your life, you still see areas of struggle with sin, struggle with guilt or anguish from some kind of past. And yet as a believer in Jesus, you need to be reminded that God's promise is to continually transform you into the image of Christ. To shave off those imperfections, to continue to heal those wounds. Jesus can transform your life. And from the earliest days of the church, the gospel was presented in this hopeful form that you don't have to be what you are right now. Whatever crippledness you think is affecting your life that has you sitting off to the side as it seems all the real worshipers are marching right into the temple... It's time to recognize that Jesus' power transforms that kind of crippled approach and puts you on healthy legs to follow Jesus in a vibrant way. Don't believe the devil's lie that you are crippled and useless and ineffective for the kingdom. The theme of the book of Acts is the advance of the kingdom, and it happens as God pours out his spirit on a lot of broken and needy people, but through those people, living out the power of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom advances. There is hope for you today. But fight off the lies of the devil and believe what God says, that your transformed life is the vehicle by which the kingdom advances. A sign and a sermon. The sign... The story of the healing in the first 10 verses serves the sermon. In other words, it sets the table. It, it gives us something to think about, and then Peter's going to drive home its real message for us. In other words, the sign, the restoration of the body, pictures for us the sermon, the restoration of the soul. So let's take a look at the sign. In short, 
It's the sign which we would characterize as from lame to leaping. From lame to leaping. Verse 2 tells us, A man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. The Jews, as we know from Acts 2, still find it convenient, these believing Jews, to, to meet on the Temple Mount, a massive open space with the temple in the middle. And they can even gather under these porches. In our text, it's called Solomon's Porch or Portico. These covered areas around the outside of the Temple Mount uh, where hundreds of people could easily gather uh, and beyond that. So they've come to the Temple Mount, and the story is careful to articulate the need of this lame man sitting by the gate asking for alms. The text highlights his inability. It says he was lame from birth. Maybe you've known someone with a condition that has kept them crippled from the very time of their birth. Maybe it was obvious when this son was born that those weren't normal legs. Maybe it was a few months or years later when they realized our son isn't like others. This isn't normal. But in either case, he was lame from birth. His inability was inescapable. The text reminds us that he's helpless. At least in any power of himself, he's not getting to the beautiful gate to ask for alms. It says he was there because he was carried and laid there daily. So he's helpless. He's, he's at the mercy of someone else to even get from point A to point B. And then the text says, at least in a way, that this situation is hopeless. Because really, this story continues on into chapter 4. Because the healing of this man sets off such a wonder and amazement that the religious leaders hear about it, and they call the disciples in for a little talk. And chapter 4 ends, well, kind of in the middle there, describing this man, and it tells us that he's 40 years old. So for... 40 years, he's lived with his inability, with his helplessness. And after 40 years, there's no longer hope that these legs are going to suddenly work, that he could do some therapy and make them work. It's hopeless. He has resigned himself to being a beggar at the gate. The man's physical condition of inability illustrates for us the spiritual condition of unbelief. It's interesting then in verse 6, Peter asks the lame man to do what he could not do. Peter, after getting his attention, perhaps begging at the gate, it was just easier not to look up, to just call out for alms, for some kind of charity, without making eye contact. Kind of opposite nowadays, right? 
You pull up to the stop sign and there's somebody there with their cardboard sign. And you don't want to make eye contact, right? Because they're staring right at you, waiting for you to look. And then they're going to really move in. Well, apparently he just had his head down asking for alms because Peter and John are articulate about getting his attention. Summoning him to something that's different. Instead of just a clanking in his cup or in his bowl or in his rag, he's being asked to engage in something different than just the giving of money. So they say, look at us. And he does. With expectation of receiving something from them. And Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I have, I give to you. We don't know what enters his mind in that instant. I don't have gold or silver. Mm. But what I have, I give to you. Gemstones? A pearl? Like a deed to property? A cart? A horse? What? We don't know what was in his mind, but he wasn't expecting what they say next. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter is asking a lame man to do what he could not do. Forty years times 365 days, you do the math, had clearly established this man does not do rise up, or walk. You wonder if over 40 years, somewhere along the way as a child, as a young man who couldn't work or provide for a family, if he was mocked by people, saying, it's a matter of gimpy, can't you get up and walk? Lousy beggar plugging up the gate, why don't you just get up and walk? Go somewhere else. But he hears these words that day. But the power of God was at work. Inability had met its match in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. God would have to provide a power to make lame legs work. It was just that simple. That's the sign. God would empower this man to do what he could not do. And here again, we see the spiritual reality of the sinner in unbelief. Sinners can't do what we call them to do. Repent and believe. God will have to provide the power to make dead hearts live. Speaking of power, verse 6, Peter makes it clear that it's not his own power. It's not his own authority, but it's the power of Jesus' name. He'll echo that in verse 12. Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? This is not meritorious. There's no virtue we have that earns this kind of display of power, and it's not in us inherently. This is the power that rests in Jesus' name. Jesus is transforming power. And in verse 7, we see the transformation. 
And obviously, it's all happening in an instant. If your children were to enact this as a little play, Peter and John would say, look at me. We don't have gold or silver, but what we have, we're giving to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then they would act out verse 7, and reaching out and taking him by the right hand. And the text says, immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Some of you have probably seen either a paraplegic or quadriplegic or someone crippled in some way where legs that that should be thick and strong with with a big thigh muscle and a strong calf muscle have have literally just withered to, to a skeletal kind of frame with skin. Paralyzed legs, unused muscle just deteriorates into nothingness. You've seen that kind of crippledness, and now somehow, in this instant, the text is saying strength came to those legs. We don't know if it was strength unseen or if muscles swelled and grew. We don't know. But a man that everyone knew could not walk suddenly leaps up. Verse 8 is interesting. Leaping up is a descriptive of how he stood. It's it, Leaping up it, at its root is really a word for springing up. So a man who was crippled for 40 years didn't slowly like try to get up and stretch these joints and legs. No, he leaps up to a standing position in a way few of us could still do at our age. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. An emphasis here on the walking part, because he had never done that before. Luke wants the sign to be clear. This man, lame from birth, and everyone knows who he is, sees him walking around and doing some leaping and praising the Lord. The transformation is complete. From lame to leaping. You heard it in Isaiah 35. As the prophet predicted, when when this Messiah comes to start this thing called the kingdom of God, it's going to be quite a show. This display of power that is going to be steamrolling hearts and and empires and nations is going to be evident in even signs like deaf being able to hear and, and mute tongues being able to speak and blind eyes seeing and lame legs now carrying a, a leaping man. And it wasn't just Isaiah. Jeremiah 31.8, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, in this gathering of citizens into the kingdom, there is going to be the perpetual process of transformation. Even the prophets are speaking in the physical terms that immediately register in our minds as an amazing transformation. Blind, seeing, lame, leaping. But the prophets were not saying that will be the great transformation. They were saying that will picture the great transformation of hearts that once hated God 
and acted out in every worldly way that we're so familiar with in our culture, and yet now have renounced that as sin and self-righteousness and throw themselves on the mercy of Jesus and his righteousness for salvation. Micah chapter 4. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them from this time forth and forevermore. Kingdom language, the reign of God through the lame leaping. The prophets knew this day was coming. Zephaniah 3.19, Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown. Walking and leaping from begging for alms to praise and renown or the glory that is due. The prophets knew a day was coming when a king would implement a kingdom and it would be marked by incredible signs of transformation so that our minds could register how great this salvation was that sweeps untold numbers into the kingdom of God. Verses 8 to 10, this walking and leaping and praising God is recognized by everyone. They know who this man is. They know what he was, and they see what he's now doing. And it doesn't make sense. We call that shock or wonder. We can't, we can't calculate. We can't do the math fast enough. How is that guy doing that? And that's when Peter tries to speak. Though verse 11 almost comically notes, while he clung to Peter and John... All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. (laughs) Somehow, he had to carve out a space of all these people rushing because they too want to see. They know who the beggar you're talking about. They want to see him walking and leaping. Peter wants to address everyone, but he's got this guy clinging to him. And in my mind, he's still pretty pumped about this. He's trying to walk and leap, but not leave Peter, and it's... Have you ever had your child tugging on your arm like, Dad, let's go, let's go. And you're just like, okay, okay, we'll get there. Here's this guy clinging to him, trying to walk and leap, and Peter's trying to preach a sermon. How do you tell the guy to calm down, right? Would you stop? Get over it already. No, it just doesn't work. The guy's pretty excited, and yet Peter has something even better to talk about, a greater transformation. But before we hear his sermon, let me offer just a word of direction about this miraculous gift of healing that Peter exercises here for this man. We began the study in the equip hour, so you can listen to that and join us next week. We'll press into it further. But just a couple of thoughts as we think of these early church leaders exercising this gift to heal this man who was lame. First, we want to be clear that the Bible communicates that God can do miracles. Now, 
The greatest attack on the ability of God to do miracles has come from those who even claim to be Bible scholars. But in their shallow faith, if any at all, they were skeptical of the miraculous accounts that the Bible includes, saying they must be able to be explained some other way or they're just not true because these things don't just happen. To which we would respond, one, God has said that he did it, and two, that's how God works. We don't always understand how his power can be at work in our lives. But any serious student of the Bible will agree that God can do miracles. The God who created everything and sustains everything can insert his power and glory into the normal operation of the creative order. The creative order has run its course in our text. A husband and wife birthed a son. The the evidence of the fall into sin and the degeneration of even our physical bodies is clearly evident in this deformity, this crippledness that afflicted their son. But it is the natural order of things. God hasn't intervened. He, He simply allowed nature and its perpetual degeneration the wearing out of this world because of sin, the groaning of creation is natural. But God inserts his power and glory into this situation in a way that is abnormal. He's going to interfere with the normal operations of skeletal systems that don't have good muscles in the leg, they don't work, and he's going to empower them to work. It's a miracle. God can do that. God can do that anytime he wants. God has been doing that since creation and has displayed his miracles all throughout humanity. But second, if we get serious about a study of miracles in the Bible, if you were to start plotting them out on a timetable, you would overwhelmingly see four stages where miracles are most prevalent. You could probably think of them. We did a little exercise in the equip hour. For those of you that weren't there and haven't filled that out already, here they are. The four primary eras or seasons where miracles were abundant. Okay, we're talking about the abundance of miracles. One was in the season of the Exodus under Moses. So put Moses down. When you think Moses, you're thinking this great prophet, this great redeemer figure. And in that era of Moses' ministry, those generations of Israelites saw all kinds of miracles in Egypt on the way to the promised land, crossing into the promised land, walls falling down at Jericho. So those generations... Tied to Moses and a little bit with Joshua, we see a lot of miracles. Plotting on our map, you might see a few things here and there, but then you get to the season of Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah works, I think, seven miracles that are recorded for us. Elisha prays for a double portion of Elijah's passion and ministry, and he seems to double that number in miracles. So for those seasons of Elijah and Elisha, those particular prophets, we have just this convergence of 
miraculous works that they do. There's a few other miracles along the way. You can think of the men thrown into the fiery furnace and they're not consumed. You could highlight some other miracle in your mind, but nothing on our chart would show us any kind of compilation of miracles like the time of Moses, the time of Elijah and Elisha, and then we get to the New Testament and clearly in the ministry of Jesus, we see an abundance of miracles. And now in our text, through the apostles, we're seeing some here at Pentecost, chapter 3, the healing of the lame man, and Acts is going to unfold more of those uh, miracles, signs, and wonders. Again, while there are occasional miracles here and there, most of the miracles are clustered in these four seasons. And so we would be right to ask, why does the Bible unfold miracles in that way? In those four seasons. And here's what we find when we begin searching the scripture for any statement about miraculous gifts, other than the fact that they are given, you could go to 1 Corinthians 12 and see they are given by God through his spirit to the church for the good of the body. Uh, But why? If you're looking for statements of purpose, you will find them, and you will find them in each of those seasons of clustered miracles. In other words the clearest statements we have about miraculous gifts are statements of their purpose. We might have questions about miraculous gifts, but we need not have any question as to why they are given. And that's number three. The primary stated purpose of the miraculous gifts is to authenticate God's revelation. To authenticate God's revelation. I've had a few conversations after the equip hour with some of you, and one of them was about credible miracles that we hear from missionaries. Well, it's no wonder in the field of missions, taking the gospel to the nations, if a miracle would happen, it it fits with the stated purpose of signs and wonders in the Bible, that they would authenticate God's message. In Exodus chapter 4, after Moses has been at the burning bush and is commissioned to go to Egypt, He says, how will they believe me? And God says, throw your staff down. And he does, and it becomes a snake. Put your hand inside your shirt and pull it out, and it becomes leprous. He gives them these signs, and he says, do these signs so that they will know you are speaking my message. In 1 Kings chapter 17, when Elisha raises the widow's son from the dead, We're told that this was clearly so that she would believe that he was sent from God with God's message. You can study the book of John where Jesus is often citing his signs and wonders, his works, and even tells the people, believe me because I say it. But if that doesn't work, Believe me for the works that I do. What was he saying? He was saying that it's the same faith. You're believing what Jesus says, or you're believing because these signs and wonders are confirming God's revelation through Jesus. Believe either way, but believe. 
Because the end is the same. You're hearing what God has said, and you're saying in your heart, that's true. Acts 2, Peter stood and preached, and he said that this Jesus of Nazareth was attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. Why the signs done through Jesus? Because God wanted to say, listen to him. Just as he did at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son, hear him in that display of power and glory. Over and over again, we're told that God uses these signs and wonders to make the message the central focus. Believe that this is true. This is what God has said. This is what God is doing. So when Peter stands to preach, he has now the benefit of this miracle that has been done, showing that Jesus transforms lives. And now he's going to stand and preach and build on that illustration by saying that Jesus can transform your life. So let's see how his sermon now applies this message of transformation. We've seen the sign. We've seen the miracle of restoration. Now the accompanying sermon. It's not a long sermon. It's not unlike his sermon in chapter 2. We hear similar expressions, similar condemnation, similar guilt that's laid on his audience, similar call to repentance, similar brevity, at least in what's recorded for us, but not a different message from what that miracle had just announced in the first paragraph. Same story, same theme, Jesus can transform lives. So here's his sermon in a nutshell. Number one, like the tragedy of the lame man born with crippled legs, sinners are trapped in sin's ruin. They're guilty before God, ruined by sin and responsible for it. In both of these sermons, Peter is clear, you've sinned. God sent his son to you and you killed him. It's not even like we would evangelize in our day, trying to convince somebody that they've told a lie or that, you know, they've cheated somewhere or that they've uh, been lustful or some way broken God's commandments. I mean, Peter's saying, you killed Jesus. These are sinners. And frankly, this is what sinners do. They hate God. They reject him. They refuse his offer of salvation. John made that clear in metaphor. The light of life came into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light. It's what they are. It's, it's what they do. Sinners by nature are light rejectors. And if that means the light was in the form of Jesus of Nazareth, we can extinguish that light, so they thought. We do the biblical record a disservice when we think of sin as somehow just kind of bogging us down and maybe if we get some help from God, we can do better and make it to heaven. The Bible says sinners are trapped in sin's ruin. They are unable to change their ways. Like that lame man was unable to get up and walk. 
So the story, the sign serves the sermon. We learned about inability and the need for God to empower transformation. And now Peter is telling us about inability of, of sinners and unbelief. And he's going to tell them God needs to display his power of transformation. In verse 13, Peter says, This Jesus, the servant of God who was glorified in this story of redemption, you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You remember the story, you may have read it back in the Passion Week there. Pilate draws on this Jewish custom a favor from Rome to release any prisoner they choose. So he says, I'll, I'll release Jesus. And they refused. They wanted Jesus to die, so they claimed instead Barabbas, guilty of murder and other things. They said, give us that guy. Give us the murderer. We want to save the murderer, and we want to kill the author of life. What an irony in this condemnation. You killed the author of life, verse 15 says. You denied his light and chose darkness. You asked for a murderer instead of the life giver. This is the ruin of sin, that they would say, give us the life taker and kill the life giver. What kind of confusion is that how dark is the darkness? Sinners are trapped in sin's ruin. Number two, like the strength that transformed the legs of the crippled man, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans tells us. It is not just powerful to save it is the power unto salvation. It's how you get there. Because if we're unable and hopeless and helpless, lame and broken and have legs that don't work to carry us to salvation, we need power in order to leap up and stand and walk and praise God. And Peter is clear in verse 12 that it is not our power Men, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power we have made him walk? It isn't our power. It's the power of God unto transformation. Verse 13, God glorified his servant Jesus. And we can read that language in Isaiah 52 as it sets the table for Isaiah 53 in the crucifixion of Jesus. The lamb slain. And by his stripes were healed. God was pleased to crush him so that many would be made righteous. This is salvation on display when Peter says, God glorified his servant Jesus. And you killed him. 15. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. Remember his last sermon? You killed him. And Peter added, but death couldn't hold him. God raised him up. Peter doesn't highlight that inability of death here to hang on to Jesus. He just says, you killed the author of life. How foolish to think that life could stay dead. And God raised him up. Verse 16. 
by faith in his name, this man has been made strong. Faith is the answer. And through Jesus, this man has been given this perfect health. So now Peter's saying, remember? Remember the transformation, the restoration to ability? God did that. And it was by that man's faith. Now, we can look back in the text and say, I don't see any faith in the story of his healing. And we don't often in the, in the miracles. And yet Jesus will say to someone, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. So we learn from Jesus in the Gospels that there's this, there's this faith interaction. Somehow when Peter said, rise up and walk, the man didn't hear the taunting of his past. He knew that that was a summons to something more than even leaping on human legs. And when that right hand reached down and pulled him up and it says the power filled his legs, it seems that man believed this could really happen in the name of Jesus. So Peter now is connecting faith to that transformation, the physical picture, so that we will understand faith is the trigger to this transformation in our spiritual lives. By faith, he was made whole. By faith, he has perfect health. By faith, he is strong. This is the picture of your salvation. You say, I don't feel like I have perfect health in my Christian life as far as spiritual health. I'm struggling with this and with that, and I bicker with my wife, and I'm patient with kids, and get kind of miffed at my boss sometimes. I know that's the process of sanctification. But who are you in Christ in your standing before God? Before God, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You have perfect health. You are dressed in perfect righteousness in God's eyes. All that sin we're talking about in your Christian life is stuff that needs to be worked out for the sweet fellowship between father and son. It does not affect your standing. It does not take from you your robes of righteousness, which Jesus gives you. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. Wholeness, spiritual strength is found by faith in Jesus. And so Peter says in verse 19, therefore, repent. Turn away from inability, from helplessness, from hopelessness, from the ruin of sin. Turn to Jesus. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Again, he's drawing on this Old Testament language, these times of refreshing. It's tied to the coming Messiah, the ministry of Christ, which is now continuing by the work of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, turn away from all of that ruin of sin to refreshing. What a beautiful gospel picture. It, it seems to lack theology, but it doesn't. It's built on the soundness of Old Testament and New. Turn away from lameness. Turn away from the cruelty of so many people. Turn away from the begging for alms. Turn away from hopelessness and turn to refreshing. Turn to no care. Turn to, turn to peace. Turn to wholeness. 
This is the gospel. I know we've, we've had it up to here in our culture with the confusion of transgenderism, with the attack on everything we hold as morally right and true. But ours is still the task to insert ourselves into the lives of these people and tell them that they can turn away from ruin of sin to refreshing, to peace, to wholeness, to God's purpose, to God's joy. And we know from Peter's message that this would include the blotting out of their sin, washing it away. Number three, like the wholeness of that once lame man's leaping, salvation will culminate in the full restoration of a new creation. And there's a lot to hear there. So like the once lame man who's now leaping, that, that's an incredible transformation. That's from as bad as it gets to as good as it gets. Like that, salvation will culminate. It will reach its fullness, its end, in the full restoration that is described as an entirely new creation. Here's what that looks like. Jesus didn't heal all the lameness in the world, but he will. Jesus didn't fix every genetic quirk that produces all forms of disability or even the impossibility of sustaining life in the womb. But he will. Jesus didn't fix every bout with leprosy or fever, but he will. You see, this full transformation that Jesus promises is a transformation that culminates. It reaches its fullness in a full restoration. Our text says in verse 21 that heaven received Jesus. We know that. We saw it in chapter 1. Peter said of Jesus, whom heaven must receive until until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And when you read those prophetic words about the Messiah's kingdom and its triumph, we realize that a full salvation yet awaits us. Not the certainty of our salvation, that's sure, and we've even been given a sign to seal that for us. It's the Holy Spirit. But listen to Romans 8, where it says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. We are groaning, though we are saved. 
because we're eagerly awaiting the fullness of this promise that all things will be made new. Repent and turn to Jesus and know that season of refreshing, but that Jesus went to heaven and he's there for a season. And that season ends when he comes back to inaugurate a final restoration, triumph over his enemies and a new creation where there are no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more Down syndrome, no more cancer, no more wasting away on a deathbed. This is Peter's message. Jesus produces that kind of transformation. An entirely new creation in the presence of the joy of our Lord forever. Jesus can transform lives. See it in the sign of a lame man leaping. See it in the gospel of unbelieving hearts gathered around the Lamb, worshiping their Savior and Lord. Jesus can transform your life. Repent of your sin against God and believe that through Jesus, he offers you righteousness, forgiveness of sins, and everlasting life. Let him restore you to life, to purpose, to meaning, to joy. And if God has transformed you and set you free from the bondage of sin, then you are free indeed, brothers and sisters. Free to live in victory over the strongest temptations and besetting sins this week. Jesus can transform lives. I want to close by answering one question. We look back to our opening paragraph the story of the layman, and Peter says to him, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. The question is this, what did Peter have? What did he have that he could actually give? We could be tempted to think that he had power. He had this apostolic power. He had this healing power. But I I don't think that's what Peter was talking about. I think Peter was thinking bigger. It may have included that, but it's bigger. And the bigger answer, what Peter had, also is something we have. Peter had, and you have as a believer, the gospel, the good news of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Are you believing it? Are you living it out? And are you sharing it with those who desperately need it? Some of them, like our lame man, 40 years in the ruin of sin, until that one day somebody showed them the way to refreshing that was found in Jesus who can transform lives. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word, for its hope, for this fresh look at the gospel, which reminds us 
that our only response to your mercy should be to live our lives as sacrifices to you. Thank you for saving us, for blotting out our sins, for, as your text tells us, blessing us and turning every one of us from our wickedness. We praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for so great a plan of salvation. May it stir us up this week to worship and to witness. For this is good news indeed. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.